Keys. Suppose you'll call this a confession when you hear it. Well, I don't like the word confession. I just want to set you right about something you couldn't see because it was smack up against your nose. We are back for the third episode, and I'm Crip from the UK. I'm Beer from Portugal. I'm George from Austria, and you're listening to Three Euros Per Movie. In today's episode, we will be discussing three movies that deal with attraction in a different way. We have Decision to Leave, Double Indemnity, and Burning. First up, Decision to Leave. Decision to Leave, the new movie by Park Chan-wook. I think we're all familiar with the director. He has made some quite infamous movies. I particularly love about Park Chan-wook, how he is one of those guys that manages to merge stylization and storytelling mm -hmm. in a way where it always feels very natural it, there's never th something that feels forced in but at the same time it's always creative and he presents you with images that you haven't really seen before i think this also applies to this movie but it is definitely one of his slower works it's not the thing you would really expect of a new park chan wook movie i guess i agree yeah like especially comparing to The Handmaiden. It's a much um, slower movie in terms of editing, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the pace of it, it's just very more methodical, much more intentional in a way that they're trying to serve the story. What are your opening thoughts on it, Crit? I really like it. Watching it for this podcast was the first time I had seen it. I was supposed to watch it last year and then it just got pushed back and then I just never ended up watching it. But it's glorious. I rated it lower when I saw it and then the more I thought about it and the longer I was writing notes on it, I bumped it up. Mm -hmm. I feel like it gets better the more that you think about it and you know, I, I think it definitely needs more than one watch mm -hmm. to truly understand it and to, to enjoy it properly. I feel that as well, yeah. But the fact that I rated it so high, you know, on, on just one watch is phenomenal. I really loved it. It is a lot slower, like you said, for Park Chan-wook, especially in contrast to, say, his other most notable film, Old Boy. It's, a, it's kind of insane. <laughs> like, the contrast of those two. You can see the growth that he's made in, what, the two decades since that film? Yeah, it's, it's definitely... A different Park Chan-wook. You can you can feel the uh, similar playfulness in the imagery, but the way he tells stories here is very much uh, is a high contrast to Old Boy or also Handmaiden, as Bia pointed out. Yeah, I think yeah. I think it's a it, it's a lot more somber and a bit more slower. Simply, you know, because it feels like an an aging director's work. You know, it feels more focused 
has more love in it. I feel like, you know, when, when you're young, you are making, you know, more fast paced stuff, maybe, you know, in, in, everything's more excitable. But this, uh, somber's not really the word I'm looking for. I would call it mature. It, it feels like mm -hmm. he is he a more mature yeah. filmmaker now. Yeah, it feels like he cares more about everything in this film and he, he's taken a more subtle and, yeah, mature approach to the themes, which he didn't do before. You know, like he would handle the same kind of themes of sexual obsession and all this, but it would be in a, in a much more, again, exciting way before. Yeah, this one is like not very sexual, right? No. No. I mean, like, it, it definitely has that in it. You know, there's um, the reoccurring theme of how sex, like, saves marriages and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of the two main characters, like, but yeah, no, the but attraction that's, that's, is not about that. That's know? what I mean. He, he takes that, which is kind of like a staple of his filmography, and he kind of pushes it to the side story, mm -hmm. which I think is, is super fascinating. And I think even more so because that relates to him and his wife, right? Yeah. The whole sexual angle. But the actual deep desire, you know, the infatuation, the, the kind of actual interpersonal relationship theme of this film is between him and our other protagonist. So I, I feel like it's quite odd that he's took the strictly sexual relationship and attached it to the pre-existing marriage and then taking the deeper relationship to the new and exciting one whereas in any other and you know any other film it'd be swapped around it's swapped around yeah yeah he would have a deeper love with the woman he's been with for years and the new thing would just be you know a, a hypersexual relationship that's the desirability of it but it's not mm -hmm. so i think that's very interesting the way he's done that i guess I, I don't know if you guys have a lot more to say that isn't spoiler territory because my thing is that most of the things I would like to talk about in this movie are all thematic spoilers, at least. There is there is one one thing I, I want to quickly get to. The Oscars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you know, I you know, by the time this comes out, my video on the Oscars will, you know, have already been out, but it didn't get nominated for anything. Not even Best International. Yep. Is it just me or is that insane? That was the snub of this year's Oscars that was the most, uh, the craziest in my opinion, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, because I think this film yeah. really had a shout for Best Picture, mm -hmm. right? Like, Best International should have been a sweep and it wasn't even nominated. And I, that's so crazy. Apart from the Oscars, as it like, won any more awards or oh you're asking the wrong guy it started off um pr pretty big i th i think it won several things in Cannes when it were it released or originally mm -hmm. it won best director at least of park chan wook yeah. yeah it won best director at Cannes. Mm -hmm. um but other than that it hasn't i don't think it's really won because okay. this Which movie else? is like super, yeah. like in terms of direction, it's just intense the way that, you know, the amount of details, the amount of like the cohesiveness between what we're seeing visually and what the story is. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah. Just, I've just just had a little look online, a little Google, and it's won nothing outside of Asia other than 
Best Director at Cannes. Damn. Which is that's so crazy to me. Yeah, that's that's bizarre, honestly. And the movie, it's not like it's not obscure. It was quite popular during the preseason, I guess. I think even some of the films that were nominated were a bit more ambiguous and stuff like that. You know, like EO. You know, there's there's a lot of strangeness to that movie. Whereas I feel like this film, everything that leaves you thinking about it isn't really what it's about. It's just the more philosophical meanings of everything. But it's a pretty straightforward story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, just, I don't get it. I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I like Io. Uh, I would prefer this movie. But at the same time, I think that Io is still kind of a wild pick. And not. I'm, I'm not complaining that the Oscars kind of appreciated the weirdness and the uniqueness of EO, so. Yeah, I'm glad EO got nominated. I'm also really upset that All Quiet on the Western Front won, to be <laughs> honest. Like, I, I don't see in any universe how that film wins, but this film doesn't get nominated. That just does, doesn't translate well to me at all, but, you know. I guess it's all, it's all an opinion thing, but I feel like it should have at least got a nomination. All right, any more spoiler-free stuff? Or are we going to spoilers? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. All right, I guess then I'll start off with the big theme that echoes throughout that movie. There's this Confucius quote that happens in the movie, but also gets addressed visually quite a lot. The wise love water, the good love mountains. Mm. The actual quote goes on saying... The wise are active, the good are tranquil, the wise are joyful, the good enjoy a long life. Yeah, I actually own the book. Oh, interesting. Um, that this, this, this quote's from. Culture. <laughs> <laughs> when I, uh, you know, I heard this quote, I was like, I've, I've heard that somewhere before. And the, the, the film does kind of butcher the quote, but obviously with translations and all that stuff, mm -hmm. obviously it's not going to be one-to-one -one, but yeah i like one that theme is brilliant i have so much to say on that theme and how it relates to everything but i like that the film cuts the quote down mm -hmm. because obviously yeah the the whole quote goes on to say like the benevolent find joy in the mountains um the wise are active the benevolent are still the wise are joyful the benevolent are long live mm -hmm. i'm glad that it doesn't go into that much detail because I think the quote is a lot more interesting without all the excess fat on it. Yeah, with the, I guess, the explanation, like the... Yeah, I feel like just saying that the wise find joy in the water and the benevolent find joy in the mountains. I just, I just feel like that's such a perfect and little quote that you can interpret so much from. Mm -hmm. How would you guys interpret that quote and how it relates to the film? I mean, in, in general, the, the quote, you could kind of compare it to the, the whole unstoppable force and in, uh, immovable object. Is that, is that how I say it? Yeah. Where, yeah. where the, the free living spirits, the, the water, I guess, um, will always be on the move and find their next adventure whilst the mountain stays still in place and, and looks for for steadiness for a constant in his life i guess that's that's my main takeaway and 
yeah. and that relates a lot to the two characters, the main characters, actual main characters of the movie. I I guess the sea is um, a body of water that you know is always changing. There's currents. There's a variation. So to compare that to a wise person is the most adequate comparison because a wise person is not uh, steady on their opinions. They're confident, but they're always like willing to, to change them. And just like the sea changes currents, a person that is wise must be able to also uh, change their opinions if they're wrong. You could also see it as the wise person is in this meditative sense, always living in the moment and therefore never standing still. Yes. Mm. Yes, as well. Yeah. That, in opposite to the mountain, which stands high and, as you said, never changes. It's the complete opposite. But to compare that to a good person or a benevolent person, I don't quite know how it goes there. You know, I still, I didn't think much about it, like the, you know, the quote. But yeah, I would have to sit on it. What is your opinion, Crit? Well, obviously, having read this quote before, I've, you know, I've notated in the book and stuff what I used to think it means. And it was interesting looking back to see what I think it means now and how it applies. I think the main the main idea is that water, you know, in any form, but even mostly, you know, the sea, since it's, you know, depicted like that in the in the film, mostly it's unpredictable. You know, it's, it can be still, it can be quiet. It can also be brash, dangerous, deadly. And it all depends on, you know, the time of day and the weather and all of those factors. Whereas the mountains are stable. They are as they always will be. Water is constantly free and mountains are still. Mm. They, they're, you know, they're always where you left them. And... Mountains have a clear beginning and end. You know, there's a journey you take, and you can take multiple journeys around that mountain, but the end result is always the same. And with water, it's not like that. There's not a clear beginning and end. It's, it's free-flowing, and it can move anywhere at any time. I, I sh I'm going to butcher these names, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely butcher these names. Her name is Song, right? Sore. Sore, I think. Okay, so Sore is the one that brings up that quote first, you mm -hmm. know, in the first interrogation or whatever. Um, and then she mentions, you know, how she has always preferred the sea. And her husband obviously likes the mountains. And then Bia, help me. What's his name? Hey Jun. Hey Jun. Mm-hmm. And Hey Jun says that he also prefers the sea, which is not true. Not true, Which yeah. was a lie to flirt, yeah. yeah. A lie. Yeah. His wife even points that out to him later mm -hmm. on, where she tells him, you know, you were... You were born in Seoul, you're not <laughs> yeah, a man of the sea. where she tells him you were born in Seoul, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I think is um, a very beautiful moment, even though it's quite small, it's one sentence and it goes. Mm -hmm. But it just kind of proves how she sees him for what he is, not what she mm -hmm. wants him to be. She's a mountain kind of person, right? She loves stability. 
you know, she she likes what she likes. She she loves him and she wants to maintain that stability. That's why, you know, she talks about even if they hate each other, they've got to have sex to maintain the marriage. Yeah, once a week and all is good. Yeah. <laughs> and I I think that's quite beautiful because they're both mountain people. As much as Hey John wants to believe he's a sea person, he just is not. You know, he loves the case and he loves working it from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. He needs structure. And I think that's why he finds Sol Rey so exciting, right? Is that she is water. She is the sea. She's unpredictable and she doesn't need this kind of structure. She throws away the photos and the, and the voice recordings and stuff because it doesn't really matter to her. There's no beginning and end. Well, on the crime side of the literal story, there is like a reason for her to throw away those things since she's kind of I know, I, I, eliminating I know. the thing. But I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah but like, the way I, that he interprets that yeah. because he doesn't know her intentions. But yeah, yeah, it works well as a metaphor as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Park Chan works very good at double entendring meanings, you know, taking a literal and also a metaphorical meaning to everything. Yes. Um and no more is that evident in this film. I feel like you see the shift throughout this film where Heijun kind of becomes a bit more like water and Solray becomes a bit more like mountains. Exactly. I also wrote yeah. down the same exact note. I think the, the shift for him really starts with two things. So as you pointed out, he, he wants to find conclusions. Like his job implies he wants to solve the case. Yeah. In the beginning, we see him, him several times solve a case by climbing up to the highest point so you have two yeah. chase scenes yeah. early on where he runs up the mountain and up a building on the, on the top of the rooftop he solves the case either with him catching the guy or in the death of the the guy he was following and then we have uh, the third time this happens where he climbs the literal mountain with the phone of the yeah. the the woman she's taking care of and he yeah. solves the case by reaching the top but there's the crucial difference the whole thing doesn't stop it's not really a conclusion cuz only he knows that the the final solution now but the case was already shut down earlier so i think that's really a first instance where the way of the mountain i guess um doesn't fully work out for him anymore and a second one around the same time is when she manages to put him to sleep by using this method a literal navy agent taught her and she refined so it's again the way of the water that helped him to overcome his problems yeah because she, yeah. she embodies um, a jellyfish right jellyfish mm-hmm. i believe uh-huh. so in that story yeah, yeah. and i i love that so much also i just wanted to point out um you, you know how they do the multiple like climbing and then the end conclusions on top of either a building or a mountain or stuff like that. Yeah. They film it exactly the same as well. Yeah. They use True. the exact same shots. The the technique mm-hmm. that like pen to pen up and it's kinda like uh not focused. Yeah. Yeah, and also the the camera dangling over the edge to reveal the true height the, of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know if you guys know this or not, but this Park Chan Wook guy, he kind of knows what he's doing. Yeah, it's it really seems it? like it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's actually kind of good, isn't he? There was a thing that you said, George, 
we were talking about the when he climbed up the mountain, you know, trying to put the pieces together mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, that, uh, that Soray might be the one that did it. It's interesting that that point, that turning point that you talked about, it's not only like the first case that he cannot solve, but it's the case that he chooses not to fully close because it's a choice. It's his way of loving her because he doesn't want her to, you know, go down for the crime that she did. He makes a decision up there and then he goes up to her, you know, and just throw the phone to the sea so no one can see it. And I think that he kind of contradicted himself in a way. Mm -hmm. He is used to finishing case, not used to, but he has an inclination towards closing up the cases and this is the one that you know he chooses not to because he loves this woman right mm -hmm. and i think that's that that part was very very uh interesting and beautiful to me when Ray um dies yeah at the end i was really confused at first as to why she wasn't going into the ocean I thought that was like where that was leading. I also heard about that confusion before, yeah. But there's a beautiful yeah. imagery that kind of perfectly explains it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. So I thought what it was going to do was follow the whole thing with the phone, you know, because as he says, throw it in the ocean, you know, no one will find it and stuff like that. So I thought like, well, yeah, she's going to go into the ocean, you know, she's a water type of person. No one will find her, right? Mm -hmm. Coming back to the whole phone thing, but then maybe, you know, they'll find her body like they did the phone. But, no, she was just going in the sand, and I was like, this feels weird. Until they did that one shot where yeah. it made sense, where she had built a mountain out of the sand, mm -hmm. and as the tide came in, the water destroyed the mountain. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. It is, it is Man, such it a fantastic imagery to end on also the whole scenery of that last final sequence i mean how how stunning and perfect was that beach even as as a location all the rocks pointing out of the water like little mountains in the sea Ugh. it was damn how yeah i have a whole <laughs> note that just says gorgeous cinematography yeah, yeah. just the cinematography in this film is off the charts mm -hmm. It's probably the best looking Park Chan Wook film ever. Man, I might have to bump up my rating. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, there's like a detail. Even though he's a mountain person, he takes eye drops to his eyes. Mm -hmm. to Water see allows him to what see. The, the, the victims might have seen. And mm -hmm. it's like. Trying it's to take so on the other perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn, I didn't even like think that. Like, he's already, like, you know, used to doing that, and then he just goes full in with uh, Sore. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't yeah. thought yeah, about I that one. I never even th yeah, I didn't think about that. Good shit, Bia. Nice contribution. You love that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> I have one more thing on, on the ending in particular. Where yeah, go for it. As Bia mentioned, when he decides to let her throw away the phone and destroy the evidence. So he decides to keep the case open in that instance. And later, at the end of the movie, 
what she really does with her suicide is keep the case open forever with them because she knows he is obsessed with this feeling of concluding the case whatever the case might be and by her disappearing kind of in in between the ocean and the mountain he will he will never find it he will never find her and he will never find a conclusion to their story so their story keeps on living forever which is kind of her only way to achieving that mm. beautiful when uh Sore's husband uh, we watched like the youtube video that he made you know with the instructions yeah. and how you should listen to Mahler 5 Mahler uh is a, compu a composer i just love how Mahler has been like just being referenced lately uh, especially this symphony that it's about how much he loves his um his new wife his companion yeah mm -hmm. his wife and even though, you know, she helps him, but she never, like, really got the credit for it. And um, the symphony is very great. and It's very victorious. I, I love that he used that for, you know, the piece that the character uses to listen to when he reaches up the, the top of the mountain. Again, this is one instance where Park Chan-wook kind of uses another idea of another director but i think he uses it so gracefully that it, you couldn't mm -hmm. even really you wouldn't even make the connection in your head but it's the exact move all of baby driver is basically you know built around this idea of the protagonist timing his own actions with the music and and lining it up so he has his own perfect soundtrack to it yeah i in a way when i was Watching that scene, I was totally relating to the character because if I was to climb up a mountain, you know, I would be putting a soundtrack to it and <laughs> I would be making sure that I put like just a, a triumphant sound or song when I reach the top. It's just, yeah, I, I, I like that uh, little detail because Mahler is awesome. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I loved the whole mount like when um Heijun is retracing the footsteps mm -hmm. and going through her plan and figuring out how she did it i loved that whole sequence you know as a, as a fan of who done it one of the best things is figuring out who done it but more importantly how mm -hmm. right how they done it it just felt like that it gave me that same feeling that a who done it does and it was, yeah, it was just marvelous, figure, like seeing him figure this out. One more quick thing on, on the water thing. My last note on it. A little detail where when they meet again, when she moved kind of after him to that city where it's always cloudy. Yeah. They meet at that marketplace mm -hmm. and she wears that dress, which he interprets as green. Uh, later on he talks to his wife and and they talk about it and he's like oh yeah she she yeah. had that green dress whilst she sees yeah. it as a blue dress which again is just this slight little thing where where he doesn't really see sore as a full water person uh, he sees the green in it the nature the land and other people see her as she really is as this more water yeah. person it's mm, just the perspective nice. that he yes yeah, yeah he chooses he chooses to yeah. s not see her as that 
I do think every single time you watch this film, you will pick up on something like oh. that mm-hmm. every single time. The the I'm just remembering uh, things. The the pills um, yeah. that she takes, they're yeah, they're exactly. but they're blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they are also between blue and uh, land and green. So, and green. Yeah, and uh, they are uh, there to prepare her for a possible suicide. And by the end of the movie, she does does commit suicide in between the water and the land. Yeah, the mm. water and the land. It's just ah, uh, I I need to watch the movie again. It's just <laughs> there's so much to unpack. There is. I love the one scene. I think it was before the sushi scene when they're eating. Mm-hmm. You mean the, the mirror whole thing? The mirror, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh my fantastic. god! I have never seen anything like it. I'm so stunned. Yeah. So basically, in this uh, interrogation, they're basically, uh, you know, uh, having a conversation. And every time a character is talking, the focus shifts to that character in this side of the mirror. You know, this side of the mirror. That's not correct. But, you know, like, in person. And the reflection is out of focus. But the reflection of the other person is focused while they're unfocused in real life. A technical detail that it's just so interesting to to witness. I paid attention this time around. Uh, since it was a rewatch, I could pay more attention to, to that in particular. It's not always that the reflection or the real person are like that there's this, this connection between them. It's only happening, uh, the thing you described, when she's using the app so when she's speaking chinese and he's not understanding uh-huh. her then his reflection in the mirror so the the disconnection will be in focus oh. while she is yeah, in yeah, focus yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, when they both speak korean for example then both of them are in focus yeah, um, yeah. and it does a lot of things like this there's there's one instance at the end where they are kind of finding an agreement but she lied so all three are in focus, but her reality. Her reflection is in focus, his reflection is in focus, and he is, but she is not her real self. So she, she pretended to be someone else in that moment so that they could find a common ground. I mean, what the fuck? How do you it's... even think of something like using... chan work, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, using <laughs> depth of field and fake edited blur to portray differences or agreements in a discussion. I mean, what? Oh, wow. Not a single Oscar nomination. It's <laughs> stupid. It's outrageous. Talking about the, um, the interrogation scene with the sushi, I did have a little double barrel note here. It's funny because the first time we see him cook for his wife, she mentions just having sushi. Mm-hmm. And then he's and he tells you know I'm not just gonna, you know, eat here with you cold sushi, you know I want to make you something, like he's mm-hmm. putting in the effort for it. And then when he first meets her in the interrogation room, he gets her sushi. Granted, very expensive sushi, but sushi nonetheless. But later on, when they're getting closer, he upgrades to cooking for her. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, kind of. A- kind of putting her on the same level as as his wife, you know, at that point, so quickly. And she also doesn't really appreciate it, since she's kind of no, questioning his 
has claimed that it is Chinese food. <laughs> she just shits on it. <laughs> True. But yeah, I thought I, I thought that was very that was a very interesting little detail. Yeah, that's awesome. I haven't picked up on that one. So this film is, you know, it's um it's a neo noir. Which one is interesting because I read that Park Chan Wook didn't intend it to be. Yeah, I heard you something know, he similar. Didn't go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't intend for that, but it somehow hits every single trope of noirs. Mm-hmm. You know, to save face and pretend that it is going to, it's going for the noir style. I love that it doesn't reshape the genre, just more so develops it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a classical noir film, the relationships are very rushed. It's very instantaneous love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, this this film doesn't do that. There is like an instantaneous infatuation, attraction, mm-hmm. but the actual romance of it is built. Yeah. Very slowly. I feel like it does that because it has to also deconstruct a relationship at the same time. Whereas, you know, in a classical noir, one guy dies... And then the detective kind of swoops in. Whereas in this one, the detective also has a wife. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they can't yeah. just bump off the wife. So they have to deconstruct that relationship while constructing a new one, which you can't just do on the fly. I like that it took its time to develop a genre, even if it didn't mean to be in it in the first place. Yes, the relationships are more in focus in this one. Uh, I think that the two main characters, the two actors, they have a lot of chemistry together. Yeah, and they do. it really worked. I I love the scene when A Jun leaves her uh, after you know finding out that she actually you know has done it, and she goes straight to Google Translate to translate the the word that he said. Yeah, and in that moment, I I fully. I was fully in and I was fully buying the romance just by the whole loss in translation being a mechanism to, you know, connect these two characters, even if the the point where, you know, where she finds out that he's actually in love with her, but not this, she doesn't find out. He is, you know, he's very forthcoming with that information and, and with those feelings, but in, was never very vocal about it, but we got the confirmation from, you know, that translation that she takes into uh, Google uh, Translate that she was not using him fully, you know, she was also falling in love with him. Uh, she says that the moment you told me that you loved me, no, the, mom- the moment our love ended, it was the moment I knew that I love you or something like that. Yeah, she says, the moment you told me you loved me, your love ended. But the yeah. moment you told me you loved me, my love started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So yeah. they did end up loving each other just at different times. At different times. There's always like this chase, you know. Oh, it's that's always so like... beautiful. Oh, my yeah. God. She starts as a suspect. He's always, you know, chasing and observing her in a way. They're out of sync. Um, when they feel that love... That love is not present in the same moment. It's not sim- simultaneous. And I think that the relationship of you know, you're being chased and going after the suspect 
it's permanent. The, the more I talk about it, like my brain is going like a thousand miles per hour and I just <laughs> cannot put it into words because I'm thinking of the next thing to say because I'm getting new ideas about it. But <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, mountain and water, mountain and water idea. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she comes to South Korea by boat, doesn't she? Yeah. Because yep. um, she fled the country. So, you know, she she's arrived to this country by water. But as we know, um, Hei Jun is from Seoul, mm-hmm. which has a lot of, uh, you know, skyscrapers and tall buildings and stuff. It's a very constructed city, to say the least. So, you know, he grew up around mountain type structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, we can kind of assume that he maybe never left the country. He doesn't really seem like that adventurous yeah. of a person. So you mm-hmm. could make the point that he always has been on this island on this mountain if you want to call it that yeah that was yeah. just something that found its way into my head mm-hmm. I- i'm just keep going at the the theme of like being out of sync or death you know he's looking for her he keeps looking for her and she's you know dead under the the sand yeah you're right they arrived at the same spot again but they barely missed each other again yeah oh, you man, think that the love beautiful. Yeah, you think that they would, in that moment, that the love would would just, you know, collide and that they would be, you would find her and, you know, tell her the things that he wanted, wants to tell her. But then again, out of sync. But also, I feel like the fact that their lack of syncopation is, you know, it... it it's so detailed because they aren't meant for each other. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. They so too. aren't. They're very much forcing that aspect. Mm-hmm. It's what I was trying to get at with him insisting that the dress was green and not blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, like, he's trying to force his own perspective on what she is to make yeah, it work. He, for some reason, believes she's the one. And it's that infatuation. Um, and it's also like it it proves to you how suspicion and mistrust of someone makes you believe in evidence that isn't there, but it mm-hmm. also makes you blind to the evidence that is there, you know, so when he was initially just attracted to her, but very suspicious of her, every theory seemed plausible. He was coming up with all these theories which were wrong, but they just seemed so plausible, and we as an audience think they're so plausible because, you know, we also think she did it. Which, obviously, she did, but, you know, we're, we're instantly confirming every piece of evidence. And then later on, you find out that certain bits of evidence aren't what we thought they were. Like, as soon as we found out that she's wanted in China for murder, well, like, that's it, case closed. She's a serial killer. But then, when you find out it was, like, her mother, and she asked to be killed. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it becomes a lot more grey. Yeah. You know, it's not quite the evidence you thought it was. So then he becomes more in love with her and more in love with her. And then at that point, no matter how much evidence there is, he doesn't really want to believe it. Until, obviously, you know, 
the whole heartbreak happens and her second husband dies and then it comes back mm-hmm. and he's straight on it. You know, it's her. It has to be her. And I, I just like how it plays with how love blinds a person. Yeah, for sure. I just thought of another moment where the where both of the themes kind of play into. So there's this moment where they go bury, I guess, uh, her husband, I think it was, where they yes. pour the ashes of the mountain. Yep. Yeah. Which is, again, them kind of finding a conclusion for the husband, yeah. which was very obviously a mountain person. Yeah, a bit of finality. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's this moment happening in that scene where he's standing at the edge and she is slowly coming up to him. And you can see in his eye and his reaction that he knows she's coming up to him, but he's fully yeah. expecting her to, to kill him, him. In, in that yeah. moment. And he's just accepting it. Uh, but then she goes in for the hug. So there's again this discrepancy between their intentions, but they are both fully willing to commit to it either way. Yeah. I wonder if she, I wonder if he trusted her more after that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, Probably. Oh, absolutely, was, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I also just wanted to say that I'm glad they didn't end up together. One, because obviously they're not meant for each other. Mm-hmm. But also, they're both kind of bad people. <laughs> you know? Like, they don't get a happy ending because they kind of don't deserve it. Especially Hey John. Hey John's kind of like a villain. Like, he ruins his marriage for this woman. True. And are you if sure? we saw... Are you sure that Absolutely. the marriage wasn't kind of already failing to begin with and he just saw it as an exit point? I think it was failing him, failing because it was too much into his work, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not... Maybe it was a thing that they should have, you know... Probably if they worked it out... But this is the thing. She believed she could work on it, you know, like mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's fair. She was always trying to find ways to improve, and she was she was a kind-hearted person. She was very well-meaning, and she mm-hmm. wanted to maintain this mountain with him. And he kind of just tarnishes it. Like if you see this film, if we play out this same film, but from her perspective, <laughs> he's a monster. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And I think that's very important to him not getting a happy ending because his wife didn't really get one. And why should he deserve one when she doesn't? Mm-hmm. True. You know, but yeah, that's just a little thing. I love the moment where he kind of erases the text message several several times because uh, every time Soray writes a new message and his response wouldn't fit anymore it was such a small little internet quirk that felt so natural Park Chan-wook also mentioned in an interview that this movie wasn't originally supposed to be that tech heavy that focused around technology but the casting of Tang Wei was was kind of why it had to be with the whole translation side of it uh, so that that just came to be, but it is still so thoughtfully implemented. And he also mentioned in the same interview that kind of it's actually a sci-fi movie because that technology doesn't exist yet that can flawlessly translate Korean and Chinese and back and forth. 
Yeah, beautiful. Such a little directing thing, but I love in the ending when he arrives at the beach, they use a drone shot, but as a stationary shot, as if it was locked down, just looking down in bird's eye view. And I mean, how refreshing is that? Uh, the, the possibility of drones to get this, those dynamic shots is obviously incredible, but at this point we are so used to seeing a bird's eye view perspective in movement that just a locked down drone hovering becomes something fresh you haven't really seen in a movie before. And he just finds those little things where taking away might sometimes add to it. And uh, one final note, a little trivia for that final sequence, particularly for that beautiful shot of the sand mountain being washed away, they had to find a very specific moment where, because after it washes away, you can see the sunset in the background and at the horizon. And that was actually not that easy. They calculated the exact date, uh, like a window of a few days where they could get that shot at oh, that exact yeah. beach uh, before month before and planned the shooting around that specific shot so that For everything that would line up with the tides coming in and the sun just setting at that moment and everything. Super detailed <laughs> shooting plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's everything I got. So I guess we should do our ratings. So, beer. Why do I have to go first? I I didn't think about my rating. I was <laughs> I, I think this movie needs a second watch, but I'll give my first rating watch as a um a nine. I had it at an eight so far. I, I'm I'm really playing with the idea of giving it a nine as well. It's it's such a great movie. I'll I'll give it a nine. I'm gonna give it an eight. I think on a rewatch it it could go up to a nine. Okay, we got two nines and an eight. That's not bad. Enough for Burning. Burning, the 2018 Li Cheng Dong movie. Oh, Li Cheng Dong, my beloved. I love this man. I love this man so much. I love his films. I love him as a person. I love his face. <laughs> his face. <laughs> he um he's made my favorite ever South Korean film in Peppermint Candy. So, when this film came out, I honestly was so hesitant to see it. Because, you know, I, I had him on such this pedestal mm -hmm. where it was scary for me to see a new film because I didn't want him to, to fall from it. And he didn't. He absolutely did not. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really yeah. love this movie. What about you guys, though? I love Burning. I probably watch it, watch it like three times. It's just, it speaks so much to me on a, you know, soulful way. And yeah, I just, it's just that good. I also loved um, Poetry uh, by Li Shangdong. Have you guys watched Poetry? Like, yes. I watched it, like, a long, 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 long very time ago. Film. But I was very taken by that movie as well. I have not. Uh, Burning is the only movie I have seen, actually, of his work. I should probably get get oh, into wow. more of his. 
Um, I love burning, so we don't got any contrarians here today. Yeah, no. Might be a short discussion. Where's, oh my Where's God, the this... arguments, guys? This might be a good episode. <laughs> the people want to in... see the blood. <laughs> Double indemnity is really gonna gonna fuck us up, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, w where do we start with burning? Uh, well, where do you start with burning? Yeah, it's it's where a weird one. Let's start with our uh with our man Jongsu, maybe. You know. Okay, go for it. What 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 you got to say about Jiangsu? He just doesn't know himself, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. He seems lost, and he meets this woman, Amy, who is very, you know, fluid and fun and just very out there. But she's lost as well, and mm -hmm. I I think he sees someone that is very similar to him in a way. But she's free. He's tied up to, you know, his farm and his family uh, problems because his mom, his mom, like, left, right? Yes. Yeah. And when he was a child. Yeah. And his father is just uh, up to no good. And, you know, he's just tied up to those uh, types of... Uh, Commitments. Uh, family problems, yeah, mm. those commitments, and he meets this person who is lost, but is you know trying to find the big meaning in life. Uh, as she says, she has this, you know, the great hunger. Mm -hmm. She does the dance for the great hunger, and um, while we could say that Jongsu does the little hunger dance, just trying to survive every day, doing his thing, while being lost in the world. Yeah, what do you guys think? I already love that you brought up the theme of being lost, because it's like the, the main theme, thing echoing through this movie. I already love that in the very first opening shot, we don't see him. We only see the things that result from his presence. So we start on basically a blank shot of a wall, and we just see that a smoke is coming from around the corner where he is smoking. For the first seconds, uh -huh. um, there's something similar happening like two minutes later where we see her the first time and she and her colleague are advertising something, trying to sell us something, but they don't even mention what it is they are really selling. So there's, again, this discrepancy. And I feel like that whole thing kind of wraps up how the first experience of watching Burning the first time is. You... Uh, super intrigued the whole time, but you're not really sure what the movie is trying to sell yeah. you. You know, it's it's very, it's very vague. Yeah, it's quite interesting you said that because I have a I have a note that says um, it shows the mundanity of everything, but nothing seems boring. Mm -hmm. You know, like everything seems just mundane. You know, every day, just the way he d you know delivers fish or whatever or. Him winning like the little stupid lottery, it's not like exciting. He wins like a crappy little watch or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um. Even like when they have sex, you know, it it's not hugely romantic or exciting. No. You know, he's kind of doing it, and he's just like looking around the room and whatever, just kind of doing what you do. But none of it ever seems boring. It still seems fascinating, and I think yeah, very intriguing. Li Chang, yeah, Lee Chang Dong just knows how to make 
everyday life seem special. And I think sure. that's that because you know the whole movie we know is about finding the meaning in life. You know, with the whole great hunger. I mean, she she mentions you know getting plastic surgery just to look better. You know, because one guy called a ugly one time. You know, Jong Su called a ugly, and you know she she thought maybe being pretty would change her life. She learns to um mime. You know, so. She can find meaning in something that isn't there. You know, she just has to believe it's there. And yeah. I think Lee Chang Dong just finds these ways to connect these greater themes to such small occurrences. Yeah, about things that are not there. Yeah. I he, think we, we should make a spoiler warning about that. But I, I have a lot of notes on, on the things that are not there. That's that's a lot that yeah. that I took away of that movie. A lot of things missing, a lot of things misremembered. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So spoilers. Oh. <laughs> also, spoilers. I just I want I want to point out something very particular that I noticed. And I don't know if this is common practice, but I've never noticed it before. Um, you know, in the opening credits to this film, you know, as he's uh he's walking, mm -hmm. you get you know uh, this actor, this actor, Lee Chang Dong, whatever. The cinematographer also gets an opening credit, which I don't think is very common. You know, it's sure. not often. Yeah, the, I'm thinking of. Uh, I don't think I've ever yeah. seen another film that has the cinematographer as an opening credit. Yeah, which I think probably is... just in in weirder stuff like I don't know Gaspar Noé movies where he just yeah, randomly yeah. puts the whole credits at the beginning or something like that. Yeah, it's weird. Like, he just goes through the main character, not the main characters, the main actors, himself, and the cinematographer, which I love. Mm -hmm. I think it's so beautiful that he's spotlighting the cinematographer because the cinematography in this film is one of its main selling points. Definitely. It's a beautiful looking movie. And I think, to in the opening credits, to say these actors help make this film. I made this film, and also the cinematographer helped make this film. He's listed everyone that really brings the entire thing together, like that yes. makes everything about this film work. Right, his directing is his gorgeous. writing as well. Yes, yeah, you know, all of it is it, it's perfect. Right, it's perfect for what he's trying to do. And then the actors give the exact performances they need to give to sell this, and then the cinematographer provides everything visually that the film requires to work. He and I yeah, I just thought it was a weird little thing that the cinematographer has an opening credit which doesn't happen so often. Mhm. Mm yeah, beautiful detail. I guess that brings us to spoilers and we can yeah, I guess so. rip open the the idea of things that are not there but are there or are they? <laughs> <laughs> So Who there's knows? one of the, the first things that comes to mind with this that is very specifically about it is the scene where she starts miming, uh, eating yeah. an orange, mm -hmm. you know, um, telling directly to him and to the audience this idea of if you believe it is there and you can truly believe in it, then you forget that it wasn't there to begin with. Yeah. yeah. 
This film does a lot like that. I mean, I think one of the biggest threads of that more explicitly is the cat. Yes. That Hamie mm-hmm. apparently owns. That Our you never little see. Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, I was going to say, it's <laughs> literally a Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. You know, you never see the cat, ever. You see, you know, evidence of a cat, but you don't actually see it. You know, the only time you see a cat is after Hamie's dead, and Ben just so happens to have one. But it also kind of implies that maybe that is the cat, because he always keeps those little souvenirs. He keeps mementos, yeah. Ben adopts strays. Mm -hmm. The women that he keeps around him are like stray cats. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I feel like the cat in the end kind of just personifies Hamie really well. Even down to the the very finest detail of they left the door open for like one second and the cat tries to escape, mm-hmm. but it can't. You know, it gets, it gets brought straight back to Ben. It's trying to disappear. Yeah, yeah, maybe implying that, you know, that may have of what happened to Hamie, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, like she may have tried to leave him, but, you know, he's inevitable in her life. I think Ben, honestly, is the most interesting character in this film. True. I agree as well. Mm-hmm. Just very enigmatic. Um, don't know what is it, what is he about, truly. There's always yeah. this doubt, you know? He's either, like, a psychopath serial killer, or just an, a rich asshole. You know? Yeah. And y- you, can never, y- you can never figure out which it is. And I very much lean on, on the side of serial killer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the film kind of wants you to believe that too. Believe that, yeah. But it, does, it doesn't fully dive into that, which I think is important. It never gives you, like, a concrete answer to what exactly happened to her. How was Ben involved in this? Was he involved with this? It, like, yeah. it never even gives you a concrete answer if the cat was real or not, you know? So I think... What it alludes to is that she is getting human or was getting human trafficked by Ben. There's this whole thing about women disappearing out of nowhere. He has this talk with one of her former colleagues and she says, yeah, she had she had a lot of uh, a lot of that and that uh, women in this in these circles sometimes just tend to disappear and no one knows where. And there's this whole thing going on throughout the movie where she seems to already disappear way before that, where all the memories she mentions are not really real or didn't happen um, or nobody can remember them already. She doesn't really have friends or family anymore. So it's almost as if she her disappearance started way before that, you know. So what do you think happened to Hamie? I think she got human trafficked for, like, whatever, probably sexual implications. I don't know. I I think I she think died. I think she died, yeah. Yeah. You think so? Um, absolutely. I feel like, because of the whole metaphor of the greenhouses. Mm-hmm, the burning. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I can see that. Um, obviously, Ben is very much implying a connection between the greenhouses and her. When he when they are visiting him 
he mentions, yeah, the next greenhouse that's gonna yeah. be burned down is really close it's to him. Very close. Very close yeah. to him, yeah. So he's obviously talking about her in that instance. I didn't really take it as she is gonna die in that because he specifically mentions that once he burned them down, they kind of just disappear and nobody notices. I mm -hmm. took that more as nobody investigates. Nobody investigates nobody cares. these women. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, Ben literally says, I have the quote here where he says, make it disappear like it never existed, disappeared like a puff of smoke, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But um, he says that he'll never get caught because the Korean police don't care about this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Implying that because she's lower class, because she's a woman even, they don't care. You know, they, they, they will never investigate that. Therefore, he'll never get caught, you know? And what's interesting about that is he's right. Ben is never caught. Yeah. I mean, we know he's done something. We know... If it's burning barns or killing women, he's done something. Jong-Soo figures him out, you know? Well, we're led to believe that he does. But... The police never catch him. Mm -hmm. You know, we never figure out what he actually did. We never figure out where Hamy actually is. It's just he gets he gets condemned for whatever he's done by an outside source, but he never actually gets caught. He gets killed off an implication, which I think is very interesting. Because also the the reason I think Ben kills these women rather than just, you know, traffics them off to somewhere else is that he has a huge devoidance of emotion. You know, he says, you know, he's never cried. He doesn't feel the way normal people do, you know, leading to the idea that he's kind of a psychopath. Yeah, but right? you could he doesn't you could take away that remorselessness and equally apply it to a human trafficker, you know. I think, yeah, it, absolutely. I think there's just more of like a, a purely logic within the universe side. I think it would make more sense that he's a human trafficker because it would at the same time explain why she disappeared and where his insane amounts of money come from that are, is also never explained, you know. I mean, I suppose, I mean, obviously, because it's so ambiguous, you can literally read it however you want to read yeah, it. Yeah. On the whole topic of the whole burning aspect, I found really interesting that, you know, once Ben kills him, mm -hmm. one, very interesting that he embraces jong Su. You know, when he's dying, he hugs him. I think, one, that's because Ben likes jong Su. He he even admits that Jong Su was the first person he was ever jealous of. <laughs> I think he likes him, and he constantly tries to give him the advice of "You need to go and." Oh right, this is why I think he um kind of kills women as well, because he keeps mentioning that he wants Jong Su to fill the base in his heart. You know, he's trying to imply that he should go and you know burn greenhouses to fill that base in his heart. Um, and obviously, Jong Su can't just get into the human trafficking business. But you know, when he kills Ben, it kind of feels like Jong Su's found that base in his heart. He's found it f through killing Ben, you know. Yeah. 
and I think Ben realizes that and that's why he embraces him because he's he's finally learned this lesson, you know, he's finally feeling this feeling. Aside from all that, what's interesting is he burns him, right? As though he is a greenhouse. But he burns him with the lighter that Ben leaves at his house. Oh really? Yeah, so Ben obviously when Ben and Hamy come to the farm and they smoke weed and stuff. The next morning, Jiangsu walks out of his house and he picks up the lighter that Ben left there. And I was thinking, you know, did Ben leave it on purpose? You know, so Jiangsu can follow this idea of finding the base in your heart, you know, blood pumping, go and burn down your own greenhouses. Mm-hmm. But he uses that same lighter to burn Ben in the end. And I don't know whether Ben left that for him to do that, you know, for that purpose. It's interesting. Yeah. There's this idea of Ubermensch, you you know, uh, George, that word, um, by Nietzsche, that one should make their own morals. You know, there's no morals in the world. There's just nature and our own impulses. And I think that Ben plays a lot into this idea and this idea of being a, you know, a superman, just someone above all law, all morals, because there's none. And he's just trying to influence Jong Su to do the same. So there's the the understanding when he, he murders Ben, there's the hug, there's the I appreciate that you finally embrace that side of yourself that I believe that every single one of the of us has. So I think he plays a lot into that calculated and very natural world of impulses. And I think he, he drives the movie in a way. Uh, there's a lot of these ideas of him not being, not being the judge of anything, you know, because he asks him, like, how do you choose, like, which greenhouse is suitable to be burned? And mm-hmm. he says that I am not a judge of that, you know, nature is, there are no morals. And this coldness and contrast, contrasted with his impulsiveness to do these things, the things that he thinks that make him feel alive, makes him the the most interesting character uh, that I've seen in a while uh, in a movie. Yeah. There's a lot of little moments, as Crit pointed out earlier, with this finding the the uniqueness or the beauty and the mundane. I particularly was interested in if you guys have any thoughts of why when he is taking care of the apartment while she's in Africa, he is always looking up to that radio sending tower or whatever it is, that he he also looked up to during when they had sex and he is looking up to that every time he is there and he's masturbating in her apartment and i was wondering if if you guys had any thoughts on that one to be honest i've seen this film now i think this was my seventh watch of this film and every single time i've seen this film i've been trying to figure that out i don't know i know she mentions that um you can only see the light. Yeah, you can only see the light like moment. once a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. 
So I feel like that definitely has something to do with it, but I just don't know what. Mm-hmm. I think it might be just of how special the moment is, you know, and he shared those when whenever the light hit, it was with her. So by looking at that light at that precise moment, he can just like trans- teletransport himself to a moment where he was with her. So it might be that just, mm-hmm. you know, um, the reflection of the light only shows up in the apartment for a moment. And yeah. in a similar way, she only in that, uh, at least up until that point, she only showed up in his life for a short moment. That that as well, that as well. Yeah. I think it might be that. Just, uh, you know, just trying to remember, to recall the those specific moments that he shared with her. Mm-hmm. This kind of relates to... Another kind of metaphor. There's a lot of metaphors in this film. Oh yeah. Um, a lot. One quickly on the topic of metaphors. I like that. Um, in that one conversation, Ben says it's a metaphor, and Hamey literally says like, "What's a metaphor?" And he says, "Ask Jong Su." And then after that is when he explains the metaphor of the greenhouses, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> you know, he establishes that Jong Su knows what a metaphor is before giving him a metaphor of burning greenhouses, which I think is quite funny. Yeah. But there's a metaphor that of the well, and you slightly you know, touched on it before, that she tells stories that can't be factually proven and people don't remember certain things. Mm-hmm. And the well, I was trying to find the significance of the well this time because it's something that always gets me because it's weirdly highlighted. Because, you know, she tells the story of she fell down the well when she was a child and jong helped her out. Mm-hmm. Now, one, this is contradictory to another thing that she says because she tells him the only thing jong ever said to her was that she was ugly. But she's not really mentioning that he really said something to her in the well. I know, she... I get, I get that much. But what I mean is like, that that would imply that he saved her out of a well and there was no dialogue yeah <laughs> which yeah. is a very odd and it just it that doesn't make sense yeah it's odd at you least. know you would say <laughs> at least something so one it's a bit iffy also to the fact that none of the family remember there being a well there but the only person that does remember there being a well is his mother, mm-hmm. uh-huh. who herself is very unreliable. So it's it's a very weird turn of events. But I think this time, I think I may have got what I think it means. Go for it. She talks about falling down the well, and she's surrounded by all these walls, and the only only thing that she could see was just the small circle of light in the sky. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, jong Su helps her out of that. You know, he comes down from that light. And I think it's more of a metaphor of jong Su saving her now. Uh-huh. You know, where her life is so drab and depressing that she makes up these, you know, fantastical stories of her life, you know, just to give it some kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. But... You know, when Zhang Su arrives, her life actually gets meaning. And he pulls her out of this well that she's been in. And um, allows her to make things like the Africa trip. 
Mm. Yeah, and I I think that's that's quite I think that's quite beautiful. Yeah, definitely onto something there. I have again a few notes that are not really or not that directly related to the themes. There's a beautiful moment in the car chase scene, if you want to call it that. It really plays with power dynamics, where he follows out Ben to the countryside and follows after him for quite a while until he loses him at some point and all of a sudden Ben is driving behind him very clearly asserting dominance yeah. being dominance. the one who's following right now super small little detail and Details, just a tiny yeah. moment but it's fantastic directing also the jazz scene amazing mm-hmm. where she actually does the you know the dance yeah obviously that one yeah fantastic i like Very beautiful i like how that's a full circle moment because she does it one one time before that and that's when ben brings her around to meet all of his rich friends mm-hmm. that kind of just make fun of her or whatever yeah yeah um but she's explaining the dance mm-hmm. and you know she does it yeah it's a performative way of doing it initially mm-hmm. but once she does it there yeah it's it's a true thing Definitely. Yeah, it, it's from the heart. Like, it, it just happens naturally to her. Because she doesn't start off by doing it. She dances normally. And then it kind of just makes its way into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she gets into it. Just, yeah. And I think it's quite tragic that she's searching, you know, she's doing the dance saying, you know, she's searching for meaning. And just as she is getting it out of Jong-Soo and maybe even Ben, she disappears. Ben mentions that the best part about, you know, burning greenhouses is that when they're reduced to ash, it's like they were never even there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's quite sad that he does that to her life. Mm-hmm. He reduces it to literal ash. You know, there there is nothing left of it. No traces. There is no yeah. trace. Yeah. yeah. Just puts into the is lack of morality again, just lack of uh, compassion towards, you know, your fellow human being, just treating women like that. And I think this film is a is a huge commentary on one class, but also kind of sexism, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the the patriarchy and also just the institutionalized sexism of crime, how crime itself can be an act of sexism, but also the way that it's never resolved as a result of sexism. Yeah. That's why Ben doesn't go to the... I mean, not Ben. um, Jong-Soo never goes to the police. You know, he never attempts any sort of legal route to take Ben down. He goes on this vigilante route to figure it out himself. That too, but it might that might have to do with also like you know just class differences. No, but that's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. That's why he does it. Oh, because I he knows he's... the police will never help. Oh, I thought you were talking about like as like Jong Su also like playing into the the sexism, like not. No, 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 no. I think Jong Jong Su goes on this vigilante hunt because he knows legally he's not mm-hmm. going to get he's... anywhere. Yeah. You know, Ben even explicitly tells him to his face, I will never be caught. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just... Man, this movie is so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. There's one early scene where the association between 
burning something down and the disappearance of women is already made mm -hmm. early on where he yeah. talks about that uh, his mother left them and mm -hmm. his father got them to bring all their stuff into the garden and they burned it in a big fire yeah. burning down the you know memories of her i liked that that parallel too because here's the thing i like how that parallels ben and jong su because ben does this as he says every two months or so mm -hmm. he also you says know. he does it for fun he mentions yeah. early on like that he would do anything for fun and he he kind of just feels nothing you know afterwards he doesn't think about it it's just it's done now mm -hmm. but the one time that jong su had to do something even similar it affected him for life yeah and and he thinks about it often, and it it lives within him. It it festers as a part of his personality. And I think that's a perfect parallel between Ben and Jong Su. Or the perfect um, difference in the end. Yeah. Uh, Jong Su says, "For me, the world is a mystery," and I think that just uh, sums up the whole difference between mm -hmm. them. Because he is always trying to be compassionate uh, towards the people around him, while Ben isn't and uh, the result of it being is this more on the capitalist side of the the themes where he ends up being the lower class person and not understanding the world the world is a mystery to him whilst the um psychopathic person with no empathy thrives in this world he is the rich yeah. young person who will get away with everything this experience this like you know knows his way around i would say amy as much as she, as she's lost as i said she's free to you know to pursue that meaning to to find that meaning and i think that jong su while he doesn't know the world and the world is a mystery these two people while on different sides of the spectrum they're both like you know in a way teaching him by their behaviors things about the world and yeah. that's why, you know, it's between them and he's so, like, uh, enthralled with uh, their characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, with the whole idea of believing something's there when it isn't and all this, did you know there's a theory that Hey Me isn't actually Hey Me? I don't believe in the theory, but I thought it was quite bizarre and interesting that because she makes up so much of her life, and none of it is a like able to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we never see her interact with her own family. Yeah. And stuff like that. And even Jong Su doesn't recognize her until she goes, Yeah, I've got plastic surgery and blah blah blah. That's why I look different. And he just kind of he's like, Oh, okay. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, there's just a theory that she was never that person. Yeah, I, I thought about it, because there's like really nothing you can confirm about her character, really. But I think it doesn't really matter that much in the end. I think more of it is just this metaphor about how easy it is in our culture to disappear as a lower class person and also as a um, lower income class person, I mean, and also as a woman in, in a misogynistic society. So I, I don't really mind either way if it was meant to be or not that she doesn't exist at all or like that that she isn't the person at all oh yeah no i don't i think honestly either way it enriches the story in a different way 
I just thought it was an interesting little yeah. thing that I hadn't really considered when I was watching the films. You know? There's one more quote I wrote down. I want to disappear like the sunlight in the distance right there. Mm. Which I thought was was really beautiful. I think she, she says it when when she talks about her experience in Africa. And it echoes back when she does the dance on his porch and the sun goes down and I think that's the last time he sees her. So yeah, when the, after the sun goes down, she disappears. Wasn't there a theory that she might have... I don't remember the arguments uh, about it, that she might have, you know, committed suicide. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't see that. I mean, yeah, I know there is a theory that one, she either committed suicide or made herself disappear. But, you know, Ben is such an egotist that it doesn't really matter to him whether someone so vital in his life just left or not. You know, that's why he's so casual about her leaving, is that he just he's very wishy-washy with people mm-hmm. because he doesn't yeah. actually care about them. Kind of, but, yeah. you know, I don't believe in that theory, but I do think it is an interesting one. I wish I could remember the the arguments, because you, that's, yeah. you said, like, I wish I could disappear like the sunset, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. That's why I remember that it, someone, like, spoke to me about it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. What an enigma you know, of a movie. I know. Like, I don't actually have that many notes. I mean, that's all my notes on this film, but I feel like that's because this film does a few things, but very effectively. Yeah. You know, and so he takes a few simple ideas and draws them out for the entire runtime. And he gets so much out of the simplest of concepts. A bit like Decision to Leave with the mountains and the water. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just one concept that just works and applies to so much of the film. And I think Burning is just a lot more ambiguous yes, than so Decision to Leave is. You know, it mm-hmm. it... That's why you can have less notes about it, because it's hard to really gauge what's there and what isn't, which I guess is the it's point. The point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... He got us. Yeah, I, I think it's just masterful. I adore yeah. this movie with all my heart. I, I love it so much. I'm going to watch it again this week, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it for burning. It's burnt. Ratings? It's a 9.5. Nine oh, wow. greenhouses and one that is burning, so it's half. Nine and a half greenhouses. Awesome. It's uh, it's an eight for me. It's a nine, teetering on a ten for me. Awesome. We're we're just praising movies today. <laughs> I know. I love this, guys. I like it when we agree. I love cinema. Oh my god, I love movies. <laughs> you know, I love you know, when a movie does, you know, movie stuff. You know, who would have known that Lee Chang-dong and Park Chan-wook are good filmmakers? Yeah, they just make crazy. good films. Yeah. How how crazy. Uh, one, one super tiny little trivia, I guess, on Lee Chang-dong. I assume you guys know this, but he used to be the cultural minister of South Korea. I, I did. didn't. <laughs> I didn't what? Yeah. Which yeah. makes so much sense, kind of. Yeah, what a cool minister. <laughs> yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Like, like a lot of his films are about, you know, the cultural conscience. Mm-hmm. 
which you know i i think he just it, it makes sense yeah Damn. it's bizarre but it makes sense <laughs> like currently no he, the, wa he was no, a not few currently, years before but he that. was a few years before okay Damn. Yeah, that's my boy. Now let's do double indemnity. What are you guys' uh, thoughts on it? I don't really have a lot of experience with film noir as a, in general, basically speaking. Also, this was my second Billy Wilder movie, I think. So I'm very new to this whole topic. This is a corner of cinema I haven't really touched upon yet. I quite enjoyed this. I expected way more the cliché of what you, as an outsider, get to learn about film noir from a retro perspective, where a lot of it is tainted with this layer of general misogyny within Hollywood and within the stories they told back then. But I didn't feel that quite a lot here, and the story itself is written super witty, the imagery is beautiful, the acting was great, I quite enjoyed myself, and I'm looking forward to you guys, what you guys have to say on it. I quite enjoyed this movie. This movie felt very solid. Like, I don't feel like I need to watch it again to, you know, just get the full scope of what it was in comparison, for example, to Decision to Leave. It was a very fun ride. The whole journey from trying to devise this plan to murder this person and then trying to cover your tracks. And while this is going on, you have this, what it seems to be like a reciprocal romance. And um, it was very enjoyable, even if the romance was, you know, a little bit rushed, as Crit talked about, like... Mm -hmm in terms of neo-noirs, uh, not neo-noirs, just noirs in general, how they often don't really flesh out their relationships, the relationship between, you know, the, the two people that are um, involved uh, in the movie. This one was kind of fast, you know, just from the moment that they meet, but the feelings that the insurance guy showed towards uh, Phyllis, it was very interesting. Also, the relationship between keys and um uh, the insurance card yeah it was very cool you said that it was a, a little rushed i felt that it wasn't really a problem within the story that their relationship was a little rushed so i totally agree that if it was purely about this uh, romantic subplot yeah. then yeah for sure those two don't really have that much in common or they they didn't spend the time to really develop emotions but the way they told it was almost in this exploitative way where from the beginning he was mainly after her looks and she was after yeah. the power of his it was a mean so i i kind of thought it 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 is a perfect use case i guess for this shallow yeah. relationship are we getting into spoilers now? Because I, I think we're kind of on it. We're, we're already teasing yeah, a bit on it. Uh, Crit, you want to say a, a few um, more spoiler-free words? Struggling to. Because everything I love about this film is about spoilers, really. I guess I just love... I love this era and this style 
Because there's this heightened reality aspect. Yes, in, you know, neo-noirs and stuff like Decision to Leave, the romances don't escalate as quickly, and the dialogue is a bit more natural. Whereas in a traditional noir, especially mm. of just kind of any real film from the 40s, 50s, the dialogue's, you know, fast-paced. Like, it feels scripted. But it's just more fun to see. Just the way actors can quickly snap back and forth with these brilliantly executed lines. The script is so enthralling that it doesn't matter whether it feels real or not. You know, it doesn't need to feel like something a real person would say because you're just in the world of this film. And since everyone kind of talks like that, it doesn't feel off, if that makes sense. Whereas if you put any one of these characters into yeah. Decision to Leave, they stick out massively, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just, I think that was a beautiful thing in cinema. Yeah, there's a, a certain a theatricality to it, where on stage you could see a female actress play a male kid and it, it would just, you, you would just accept it. You would, you swallow that you're not watching reality right now. You're watching a representation of something else. And there's this certain theatricality also to, yeah. especially this era, I feel like. Right. So I've never been a huge Tarantino fan. I like some of his films. I think he's made some classic films. And I think he's, you know, he's made some of my favorite films, but he's just never a director I... I can admit to loving because I just don't really love him. However, I think one of the best aspects of his film is the one thing that everybody knows, which is the dialogue, right? He's really good at writing dialogue. Yeah. And I've always felt that was weird because his dialogue has never felt natural to me. Like the way people talk in Pulp Fiction is not the way people talk. But it just, it feels good to hear like the lines are nice to hear and the rapport is really good the reason i'm saying this is because i feel like he does the best at replicating the this error dialogue wise he's really good at writing dialogue that sounds like it's from the 40s and 50s i agree the way he directs actors to say them so quickly without thought to each other super reminiscent to the 40s and 50s and i think that's one of the charms of quentin tarantino that doesn't get highlighted as much as it should mm -hmm. i think it's just kind of a proof of concept that people would love 40s and 50s movies like on a, on a large scale but they rarely get a chance these days if you ask the you know the average 25 year old you know oh do you want to watch this 1944 film called double indemnity <laughs> the 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 chances are no but if you ask them do you want do you want to watch pulp fiction the chances are they're probably going to say yeah and i don't think they're a huge mark off of each other yeah i think people have kind of a, like a preconceived idea of what a old movie is you know yeah black and white it's going to be boring it's going to lack, you know, the action and the visual effects that, you know, the public in general is used to. It really is a shame because 
many of the elements of cinema, you know, were constructed and evolved from in that era, and they are applied still today, you know, and the just the core of what makes a movie good, it can be fine can be found in many of those movies. I mean, the thing is, a lot of people they make fun of this era. You know, when they reference it, they parody this era. But I think what a lot of people miss is that this era in itself is very tongue-in-cheek. They're very mm. self-aware. Like, they know. The fact that Benoit Blanc in the Knives Out series is such a beloved character instantly. Because he's written very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Everyone knows it's kind of a parody of his own character. And that's what every character in this film feels like. They feel like they're writing it, well, Billy Wilder, you know, is, is, is writing it knowing what, it, what the perception of it is. I can definitely see that, at least in, in the main protagonist, when he shows up the first time to the house of, to the house of Phyllis, <laughs> his basically first thought is that oh yeah that's a sexy woman <laughs> yeah. right there you know and it's super over the top with his thoughts being dubbed over yeah it's it's very very over yeah, the top a lot of older movies are a lot more intelligent than people give them credit for a so, lot more intelligent people assume just because you know the film is primitive that you know, it doesn't have the intelligence of a modern movie or a modern meta movie when it's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. I know we're getting a bit off track here, but... No, I think this is a, a good introduction to, you know, the movie. The, the first time I watched Charade, you know, the Audrey Hepburn film, I don't know if I've really seen it, but I won't spoil it because it's a whodunit, basically. And I remember finishing it thinking, like, because I was about 17, thinking, that was so smart. That film was so smart. And it kind of blew my mind that old movies could be smart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we we know tropes now, right? We understand tropes. Mm -hmm. So you would expect to be able to go to one of these earlier films that the tropes come from and be able to just figure it. But you don't. You know, it, it tricks you. Because it knows itself already. Mm -hmm. Which I think Double Indemnity does. Yeah. You know, in a in a way, like you you think you're knowing you know exactly where it's going at every turn. You you think you get it. But you don't. <laughs> and you don't. It just finds a new way to surprise you every five minutes. Like the pacing is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's, it probably has to do with how conversations just bounce. Like, there's no room yeah, to breathe. Yeah, they're very snappy. Yeah. Yeah, it's very quick. It's like the but Aaron Sorkin the... of its time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's even outside of the, the dialogue, just the way the story moves, like, it never feels lethargic. There's no fat. It just moves on exactly when it needs to. Mm -hmm. Scenes don't linger when they don't need to, they just happen. What helps as well is the is the first scene of just of of him walking into like the office and he's, you know, starting to tell the story. Yeah. It just gets you immediately. Mm -hmm. You're in. You know, it doesn't try and set up anything grand or 
It doesn't try and set any kind of scene. The way that it starts, it just wants to get to it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to tease you. It just wants to give you the meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Which is one more thing I can say before we go into spoiler territory, since it's the opening scene. I think that's that's totally fair to spoil a bit. Yeah. It opens up with what we would consider nowadays a trope. It opens up basically with the moment of a lot of movies where it's like, you're probably wondering how I got here. Yeah, you know? it does like <laughs> a sonic it, It's bit. kind yeah. of that, but it's at the same time way smoother, more understandable within the story. And it's also decades before the trope probably ever became a thing. Yeah. So, so. I'm sorry, I'm just, I can't believe, do you know, I didn't even really think about it, but yeah, it really does start with the, uh, yeah. That's me. Exactly. That's me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the freeze frame in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the fucking Sonic bit. Oh yeah, it, it, it really is that, but it's so slicker. <laughs> so much slicker. It is. Yeah. Because this, it's a trope for a reason, right? <laughs> Things become cliche for a reason. They become cliche because they were done really well at some point. That, you know, people tried to replicate it and it became a trend and then, you know, it became a cliche. Yeah. That's the life cycle of something. But, when you find something that's so early that it wasn't a cliche just yet, that's when you'll find where it's done the best. Oftentimes, because, yeah. Because, you know, yeah, they're inventing the idea. I'm sure it was done before this film. It's not going to be the yeah, first probably. one to ever do that. But, you know, whatever film saw this film or, and then went to replicate that, Oftentimes, they never really know why it was special in the first place. You know, they just feel that it's special, so they just think the act of doing it is special. Mm -hmm. So then they put it in their film, and it just doesn't work the same. And then that's when people go, oh, that's a bit corny. And then, you know, other people do it, and then it becomes a cliche and a trope, and people don't like it as much. They roll their eyes when movies do it. But when it's done as fantastically as it's done here. Oh my god, it's cinema. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's actual cinema. Yeah. I think I'm the only one here that has seen this film before now. My dad's into a lot of noirs. And I remember like thinking, yeah, 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 whatever. I've seen this film before when I was younger. And then when I was about 16-ish, I rewatched it. Because I wanted to gauge like my dad's taste in films, because he doesn't have the best taste, <laughs> bless him. And I was just going through a bunch of movies that he liked, and I remember he had a DVD of this, so you know I watched it. And I remember even thinking at sixteen, instantly, this film is so gripping. It grabs you from the first five minutes. It demands your attention mm-hmm. because the you know the trope is yes. That's me. You're probably wondering how I got here. But it, this film doesn't have to, like, say the line. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because it does make you think. You know, he's telling the story and you're immediately thinking, how the f*** did you get here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, what happened to you, man? And also, he gets that not with a flashy action scene where he's dangling from a building or something. He's just yeah, sitting no. in front of a recording device whatever it was exactly um it's very confessional yeah and and he's just recording a confession and the the thing you're asking yourself is more of the kind of why even (laughs) yeah 
what is this setup? Because the, I like how they don't. Wait, we we should get into spoiler yeah, territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was just about to say spoilers for double indemnity. I love that. Even when he's wounded in the beginning, you know, he's been shot. Mm -hmm. They don't highlight that. Yeah. If you're not really paying attention, you might miss the fact that he's been shot. And I definitely did. I, de I didn't pick up on it. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> at all. I remember because, you know, I had forgotten it. It had been a fit like, what, six years since I had last seen it. I forgot the ending pretty much. Mm -hmm. I was watching it and I was like, is he shot? I think he might have been shot. So I had to rewind and just re like check that scene again. I'm like, he is shot. <laughs> you can't just start a movie like that. <laughs> why is he shot? And why are you not making a big deal out of it? Do they show it like before he gets to the office or? He, he walks around kind of like an old man. Yeah. I remember when I watched the beginning. I was intrigued by the way he rocked around because it seemed odd, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. And by the mm -hmm. end, it made sense. And it's kind of awesome that they managed to showcase it just enough to make it weird where you expect something, but you don't yeah. get the solution immediately as to what it is exactly that is weird about it. Because the feeling that I got was that he was acting defeated but i didn't like notice that there was a a wound that he might have been wounded yeah if you mm -hmm. go back and yeah. just look at that like when he first sits down in the office he clearly has the gun wound but just because <laughs> the film's not focusing on it it's easy for your yeah. eyes to just glaze past it and especially because yeah. it's in black and white you know it's not obvious with like red blood you know pouring out of someone Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to miss, and I think it's so genius that they didn't spotlight it for a reason. But if you do notice it, you're thinking, why have you been shot? And your first immediate thought is to come <laughs> to work and make a confession. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> go to a hospital, dude. It's very interesting because the movie from that moment just lets you thinking that, okay, this guy just got away with murder and it's just like you know uh smudging it in this person's face by making this confession yeah so you're just like watching the movie knowing okay he's safe like he's you know he got away because we know that he's making a recording confessing mm -hmm. the, the the deed it's interesting that they actually managed to twist that and uh, you know, surprises with no, it didn't actually get caught in the end. Uh, it did actually get caught in the end. Mm -hmm. It's very, it was very interesting because it, it, the movie always kept kept surprising me. I never knew what was coming next at all. Which is yeah. beautiful because it gives you everything up front. True. Like it, it, you know, he sits down. One, he's been shot. Two, he's confessing. Three, he says he murdered. Right, and then it gives you all of this, so you're mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, so I know everything, and then yeah. when it goes, so what's what's <laughs> left to tell? Yeah, what, like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks for telling me the movie, man. But then you know he gets into it, and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. He murdered for love, and then it goes a bit more in, and then you're like, oh, they both murdered for each other. That's beautiful. And then <laughs> the more that it goes in, you're like, oh. She never loved him. 
true. So it just keeps diverting what you think. It sets up an implication. It's expecting you to think a certain way about the film just so it can prove you wrong. It's fucked up. It implies stuff just to make fun of you for thinking yeah. it's yeah. factual. <laughs> it's like, well, I never explicitly said that was going to happen, is basically what the <laughs> film's saying, you know? I just yeah. implied it was going to happen. It's not my fault it didn't. I have actually a note that is similar to that or relating to that, where I just wrote down shifting questions. In the beginning, you are kind of left to ask yourself, okay, so where did it go wrong so that he would record this now? Then it changes the the thing to, okay, it seems to all go right. So what even is the idea behind the confession until it's like, it went wrong. So how did he get out of it? Since they are yeah. so entangled with each other in that plan, how did he get away whilst she was caught until it finally gets to the point where you understand, okay, that's how he got away. But why would he end up confessing anyways? The movie keeps being very exciting just by creating problems and putting these characters in bad situations and then solving it only for, you know, that to lead to another problem. Or at least lead to a new question because we already or know new, where yeah. it ends up and those things just don't match up with each other for the most time of the movie. And you're always left thinking, okay, but there's something still missing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. God, this movie's so smart and fun. I, a thing that isn't really to do with the writing, then, I guess, is the costume design. Mm -hmm. I love the costume design. I know it's super basic for, you know, a, a film noir, you know, it's a guy in suits. But Phyllis specifically, every outfit they put this woman in, she looks cold. She looks so good in everything. Yeah. She wears this one floral blouse. It's like the best blouse I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I don't know where they, they've been storing this clothing, but I need some of it. It's fucking sick. In what part of the movie? Uh, because I, I don't remember. I'm Me trying neither. to recall whether it's their first meeting or second. That's awesome. We have the third episode, and by now we have declared the... The greatest dress in film history in the last episode in Singing in the Rain. <laughs> and now we have the greatest blouse in film history in <laughs> Double Indemnity. I think it's their second meeting. It's around like 20, 21 minutes. I just really loved the blouse. I, d I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I want to see. Now I'm curious. <laughs> but anyway, if you just go through that film, every outfit they put this woman in, she absolutely kills it. For sure. I've not watched many, you know, black and white movies mm -hmm. but i do love the um, those shots those close-up shots of you know phyllis when she's talking to neff you know the light shines on her in a way that it's very graceful and glorifying yeah it just makes me like i get it why he's falling in love with her you know <laughs> because that shot just makes me fall in love with the character it's just so beautiful Mm -hmm. Also, the flirting, as you guys were like talking about uh, before, uh, the script is very tight, you know, very snappy, and the flirting is just it just works so well. Yeah, it's efficient. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very efficient, very fast paced. Yeah, 
I love it. Generally, just a lot of wittiness in the dialogue. Oh, so I, I wrote down one line that, that just made me crack up where he's, I think it's when he's at her place for the first time and the maid says something like, uh, they keep the liquor locked up. And he's like, that's all right. I got my own keys. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. Yeah. Um, Fred McMurray, who plays Neff, gives <laughs> one of my favorite performances ever. However, I think he's topped by one person. Edward G. Robinson, who plays Keys. Yeah. Keys, Keys yeah. steals the show. Whenever mm -hmm. he's whenever he's on screen, he is chewing up that Spire. dialogue. I love it when he's talking about the little man inside of him. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. He just absolutely bodies the dialogue. He just feels made for Billy Wilder films. I also like about this movie that I guess I, I teased a bit at that earlier before, but contrary to what you expect of a film noir, the femme fatale is kind of working out here in a way because she is for the most part only playing the weak woman that needs help mm -hmm. of the big hero guy to manipulate him she's very aware of her looks she's very aware of the effect her looks have on him and the power she has over him due to that and she really plays with that she is the one in power for the most part I think that's kind of a genius twist on the whole weak woman needs yeah. help hero story. It's playing story. on your expectations. Yeah. This see, I I will I was gonna mention this just, but because you mentioned earlier on that you know a lot of the times when you see movies this old, there's a lot of odd misogyny oh, and mm -hmm. very yeah casual sexism and all this, but you know Phyllis Dietrichson is like the original girl boss gatekeep gaslight queen like she <laughs> is running the show and the whole time you think that she's just this erratic not knowing what to do damsel in distress she wants to bump off her husband but she's too weak and fragile to do it she needs a big strong man to come and help her when really she's playing everyone yeah, you know, and she's she's truly the mastermind behind the whole thing. That's right. It's absolutely glorious. It's weirdly feminist. I guess she's like the villain essentially, but mm -hmm. she's the smartest person in the film. Uh, may I maybe Keys is the keys... smartest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, but but she is close. She's see, close. <laughs> the only the only reason I can't give it to Keys is because he didn't figure out it was Neff. It was too close to him to see it. Mm -hmm. And it was insanely obvious. Obviously, from our perspective, it's obvious because we know. Yeah. But it should have been obvious to him. Because I have written down that the best scene in the whole film is when Keyes explains why it wasn't a suicide. The way yes, he knows... It takes his side. Yeah, how he knows yeah. it's not a suicide, mm -hmm. and it's it's absolutely baffling the way he figures it out because it that feels like Knives Out, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm assuming you've both seen the both Knives Out films, right? Yeah. No, not both, just the first one. Well, you know the scene where Benoit Blanc 
you know, is at the very end and he figures out the whole thing. And then he puts it together in a way where you're like, man, that should have been obvious to everyone. Mm -hmm. That's what Keys does. Keys does that, but it's like the prototype of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it feels as if Ryan Johnson saw this one scene of Keys deducting mm-hmm. why he isn't a suicide and going, I'm making a whole movie like that. <laughs> like that scene is the whole yeah, movie. I'm just like making a character about that. Yeah. It's so brilliant. And the twist in the third act, when it finally reveals that she never loved him, she was just playing him the whole time and he's a fool. Mm-hmm. Oh, my heart. I also love that this was pure coincidence, basically, because I have no- never seen Double Indemnity before, and Crit has never seen Decision to Leave. But with this female character that's kind of actually the one pulling all the strings, mm-hmm. we really have a beautiful connection there. It, it really felt like an intentional um, c- connection we made when it was really purely accidental. <laughs> this is what makes... Park Chan-wook saying that he didn't intend to make a neo-noir film. So funny to me. Because it it really does just feel like a neo-noir film. Like, it it is every trope of a noir, every single trope of a noir, packaged just in a modern setting. And partially subverting it, but definitely playing yeah, with exactly. the tropes, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I just think that's incredibly funny, because... All it takes is for you to see this film to understand how close Decision to Leave is. To the noir genre, yeah. You know, it's kind of hard to do all of these tropes in the same succession on accident. (laughs) Yeah. But he just... he, (laughs) He just does it. But I feel like, I mean, not to go back to Decision to Leave, but that's one of... Maybe that's part of Park Chan Wook's genius that he invented the genre of noir again Accidentally again yeah, yeah and didn't know <laughs> you know like you know you know when you think of like a really good idea or a really funny joke or something like that and you google it to see if anyone else has done it and they have you know and you're like oh man <laughs> I thought I that, that. That. you know that's what park chan wook did with the noir genre he just <laughs> accidentally made the genre again and then googled and he was like fuck this is already a thing <laughs> damn it it's 18 yeah. years too late <laughs> actually i actually think he didn't google it you know it's just i'm, I'm like i'm a genius yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was just so under- completely new understandably so i mean if you're park chan wook then why wouldn't you think that <laughs> I really adore this film. Wholeheartedly, I don't think it has a solid flaw. I feel like anything that you can say is remotely negative about this film would come off incredibly nitpicky. All the things that I don't truly love about it are purely based on taste. So it's not like I I would have a single objective complaint about it really i mean like because it it makes you you know think you're gonna have things against it like the beginning where you know it's starting the end of the beginning and you know the romance escalates enormously quickly so you also think you're gonna deduct points for that because it's not built Mm -hmm. and then and it's not believable but then when it comes full circle it just swipes all of those points away from you Mm -hmm. Because it was all intentional. Yeah, the script always feels like one step ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's it, it it's truly brilliant. Are we gonna talk about Keys and Neff's relationship because that was so heartwarming to witness. The whole I'm gonna flip my table. And it was like, <laughs> I love you too, Keys. <laughs> uh. I love their bromance. They're like they they have such ma- like raw masculine energy, both of them. Mm-hmm. But they clearly really love each other. <laughs> you know, they have great great respect for each other. Like when he's respect um not respecting he's offering that job to yeah. be his assistant mm-hmm. and you know after he finally denies the job after all the begging he's like yeah you're overqualified for it anyway I just thought I'd give it a shot <laughs> <laughs> you know he's like he's just trying to mug him a little bit and I'd, it's very playful I also have a note on, on that very scene where he offers him the job mm-hmm no matter what subject, if you get a well-versed person in front of the screen and he just passionately talks about whatever subject he is and he's truly believing in the things that he says, it's always fascinating and interesting to watch. And that was like a perfect example for that when yeah. he is literally talking about a 9-to-5 crucible job but he makes it so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. he sells it this really well. This is not well. a desk job. Yeah, I wanted that job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, where can I sign? Did you know, by the way? I found this out when I was just doing a bit of research on the film. But there's an alternate ending to the film. Ooh, oh. interesting. That they filmed but never released, where Neff survives, and he dies via the gas chamber. What? Uh... Yeah, they they filmed it in everything, but Billy Wilder chose to not do that ending and to just cut it short. Yeah, I I think that was a good I call. I prefer this ending. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I like the lighting up the cigar. I think that's absolutely insane. Yeah, this part might be wrong, but I think like Keys is like present at the execution. It's like their final moment is him watching him fucking die in the gas chamber. Mm-hmm. I can see how a final moment of keys in that situation could be interesting to see like the heartbroken side of keys and and that scene. Yeah. I, I I can see that, but other than that, damn. Yeah, it, it just feels a bit excessive, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Bloody There's also a certain time capsule element to this movie, not even talking about filmmaking or how storytelling changed over the last 80 years but also just how general (laughs) things changed there's the scene where he stops at a diner gets a drink a beer and has like this little table on his driver window just for (laughs) beer drinking and I'm like god damn there was a time when a product existed to enable you to drink and drive hell yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's like wow that that wouldn't fly today (laughs) I had that feeling when they said uh, I don't remember exactly the date but they said something like oh it's 1938 and I was like Damn, it's 1938. Like mm-hmm. the Holocaust, you know, it was happening still. And then there's what there's one scene where she asks for the maid, and he says, "Oh, it's a colored woman." And I just got you know a little bit shocked mm-hmm. because you know it was the thing at the time. People would just like blatantly 
blatantly uh, be racist. It's just ingrained, you know? Yeah. What's incredible about that, though, is that saying, you know, oh, she's a colored maid was incredibly respectful. Yeah, kind of. You know, for the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, for the time, that was really, like, accepting and progressive to say. Mm -hmm. You know, because they were still flying the N-word around, left and right back yes. then. You know, and he, so he didn't say it with this, like, disdain. It was more of a, they're different people. But it wasn't like, they're lower people. Which mm -hmm. is very, like, it's a weird line to skirt. Obviously, we're all human, we're all equal, all that. When he says that, it feels as though he he feels they're equal, but they are different, pe like different kinds of people. Even though they're not, it's just it's a weird, it's a weird acceptance. Uh, I don't know about the equality, like him feeling as that he's equal to her, but I do get that you know he could be saying worse things mm -hmm. about the that person, and. I think that the shock comes from, you know, that designation of like, no, she's a colored woman. The shock comes from that being normal and not blatantly mm -hmm. like, you know, is was trying to be offensive. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, I get it's you. not that, yeah. I was just saying it's just, it it's weird because by now obviously when you watch that back you're like, oh wow, yikes, that hasn't aged well. Mm -hmm. When at the time it was progressive. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, as I was saying before, like those type of shots where the light is shining and sometimes they um, black out a part of the face, you know, like yeah. there's like this shade to it. I kept thinking about like how they would cast or not cast. That's what I meant. You know, black people first because, you know, they were black and their place was not at the movies, mm -hmm. but how that would play out if they would cast a black person, the difficulties that they would have to do those types of scenes. So maybe that was like, you know, let's not hire colored people, not because, you know, they're less than us, but because they don't, they don't shine as bright as a white woman <laughs> uh, being so graceful on the screen. That, that Those were the type of, type of thoughts that were going through my head, uh, especially after watching Babylon, you know, mm -hmm. just, yeah. With the makeup scene and everything. Yeah, the makeup scene and everything. Yeah, yeah, I could see how there's like some slight technical overcoming to get a colored person and white people in the same frame and still expose everything correctly. But yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, that's probably not the reason why. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was not the reason yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> I only have two more little things I wrote down. Two scenes mm -hmm, in particular ahead. that I really loved. First one being the in the doorway conversation between him and Keys, where she is already hiding behind the door. That was mm -hmm. just yeah. fantastic staging in general. Such a comedic scene and, and such a tense moment a just by the tense. nature of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that was really well done. And probably my favorite directing moment was when I think he's already at that point walking to uh, back to the office to record his testimony, basically his, his confession. All of a sudden, the sound effects cut out and he literally says, I couldn't hear my own footsteps as he turns around 
and is super mm -hmm. confused. And he's like, they were the steps of a dead man. And I was like, damn, how great is that? Damn, that, <laughs> Just this, yeah. that line hit hard. Yeah. This yeah. mixture of really working good. with sound effects, actual acting into it, but also using the kind of easy tool of overdubbing thoughts. But it's yeah. well done and thoughtful because you couldn't really express that just with acting you would probably not get what the moment was but the way yeah. it was done it just worked and uh, i wanted to quickly run back to um that alternate ending i was talking about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i like that billy walder chose to go with the ending he did simply because it comes full circle like the film opens with him in that doorway, Ryan walking in the office and all this. Mm -hmm. And then it ends with him dying Going out that, of that. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Dying in that hallway. I feel like it was, it was really poetic, mm -hmm. which is not always the case for a film where, you know, it begins where it ends. If that makes sense. It even subverts you to the point where, you believe he's going to die in the chair after this confession. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, because it turns out Keyes has been standing there pretty much the entire time. Yeah. You know, and I loved that small reveal where the camera just pans to Keyes in the doorway, and you're just thinking, fuck, I didn't think this could get any worse for this guy. <laughs> but apparently it can. What a great little movie. A little complete package with a bow on top. Everything there that needs to be there. But yeah, I'm watching. I'm watching now. I'm like seeing now the blouse that you just yeah. referenced, Grit. It's beautiful. It's a very pretty blouse, it. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Not only like the pattern, but the way it flows yes. on the oh my on the it's, arms. It's, it's a perfect beautiful. blouse. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Actually, it's super embarrassing. I was watching this film in bed, my headphones on on my laptop, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to make a note about that blouse. But I'm such a dude that I didn't know what it was called. Like, I was like, is it a top? Is it a shirt? I don't know what that is. So I had to turn to my girlfriend out and, like, poked her awake. And I was like, oi, what? what's this? What's oi. she wearing? <laughs> oi. <laughs> Most British thing ever. Yeah, oi. <laughs> what's the yeah, thing? Like, oi, bro. Oi. Yeah, I was poking. I was like, oi, what's she wearing? What's she wearing? And she was like, it's a blouse, you idiot. And I was like, ah, blouse, yes, blouse. And then I was writing, costume design is great. I love the floral blouse. <laughs> like, mm, yes, a blouse. Cinema is teaching you about fashion. Who would have thought? <laughs> uh... I guess that brings us to ratings, does it? It does, yes. I'm going to give it like an 8.5 out of 10, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, giving it an 8 out of 10. And for the shock of the day, I'm giving it a 10. <gasps> oh! Wow. <gasps> it happened. Oh <laughs> it my happened. god. Yeah. It happened. Is it your first 10 on no. this podcast? Oh, on the podcast, yes it is. On yeah. the podcast, yeah. I'm actually surprised it came so early, to be mm -hmm. honest. But granted, I am the one that recommended this film. Yeah. So I don't think it's actually mm. that weird. But still, yeah. uh, it's going to be hard for us to follow up um, with any more episodes where 
we have that high of an average rating. <laughs> I think yeah, we're, I think we're like at a nine average on every yeah, movie we've set this the bar week. Very high. <laughs> yeah, the bar is very high this episode. Just good movies, guys. You know? Yeah, good movies, man. Who would have known? This wraps up the discussion for today. The first movie we are gonna discuss in the next episode is the new movie Tar by Todd Field with Kate Blanchett. It follows the fictional story of Lydia Tarr, the first female conductor of the Berlin Orchestra and one of the most important figures of classical music in modern times. Tarr is a film that is hard to pinpoint, it flirts with many genres and should best be experienced blind. We're also gonna watch In the Bedroom from 2001, Todd Field's feature film debut. It's a story about a young man that falls in love with an older married woman, starring Tom Wilkinson, Sissy Spacek, and Nikki Stoll. And lastly, we'll also be talking about Amadeus, a 1985 film detailing the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, one of the most important composers to ever live, taking liberty with his story to create one of the most subversive films within the genre. If you don't want to get spoiled for any of these movies, you have two weeks to prepare. As we were George, Beer, Crit, and you were listening to 3 Euros per movie.